for our COBT viewers, it's Maynard Mike here with something super special. Uh, last week, we were thinking to ourselves, how can we possibly get our heads around what's going on in Davos? And then we realized our good friend Dan Jurgen was there. In fact, Dan was there with a handful of the S&P Energy team. So we got lucky and Dan agreed to come on and visit with us about some of the things he heard. And we'll also get a chance to hear about how Sierra Week is coming together this year. Dan, let me just pause and say, it's a total pleasure. This is your fourth appearance on COBT, and uh, I don't know how we got so lucky. Well, thank you, Maynard. Very glad to be back on uh, COBT. I know that each time I'm on, you have a bigger and bigger reach and a bigger and bigger audience. I'm glad to be able to uh, contribute to the discussion with you and Mike. Well, you're too kind, sir. Let me just pause. It's the middle of or the beginning of earnings season and see what Mike would tell us about what's happening in the markets. Yeah, I mean, and markets are pretty uh, strong here recently. They've been strong all you know year to date. I mean, there's a lot of enthusiasm in the market. Uh, you know, three things we want to talk about today is you know, pretty much the bullish equity sentiment out there. You know, the current energy commodities, what's going on there, and and really what you know you you referenced what's going to happen with earnings season. So first of all, from a market standpoint, you know, ten year bond yields continue to gravitate higher. They're around four point one five percent. The second thing is. We're a little bit concerned with the equity markets at this point in time. There's a lot of bullish sentiment. Volatility is extremely low levels, you know, and the market, the, you know, sentiment is, is really, really, really bullish. And so that concerns us, you know, and, you know, I think the reason that is, is because everyone thinks that the Fed is going to be cutting rates. The Fed is going to basically, you know, have a soft landing. And so we think that's a bit premature. So something we're concerned about. I think the other thing too is, you know, when you look at broader equity markets, it really is mostly the S&P and the NASDAQ are moving. If you look at some stuff like the Russell 2000, they're far below their all-time highs. And you know the NASDAQ and S&P are at their all-time highs. So that's something uh, to be a little bit cautious. On the commodity front, you know, the thing that we're looking at is WTI. And you know, just crude oil in general has got a bit of a bid here over the last week or two. WTI is around $75 a barrel at this point in time. I think the interesting thing for us is that WTI uh, time spreads, crude oil time spreads are actually now back into backwardation. As you know, they went into contango for a little while. And so typically when you go into backwardation, it just tells you that the market is more physically tight. And so we're watching that really closely, but that's a positive development. The other thing that you know we would say is maybe some of the reason we're in backwardation with WTI specifically is because the frigid cold weather really took a lot of supply off the market in the last you know, you know, week or so. How much? I mean, some people think as much as 2 million barrels a day of U.S. Uh, production, crude oil production was offline, and over 10 BCF a day of natural gas production was offline. So that could be affecting, uh, you know, sort of physical markets, at least temporarily. I'd say from the standpoint of uh, energy equities, yeah, Maynard mentioned it. Uh, we have already started the earnings season to the uh, big three, that being Schlumberger, as well as Halliburton reported. Very positive results. Most of these companies, both of these companies are talking about double digit growth uh, for them, for their companies, double digit growth in international, uh, in the international arena. And I think the more positive thing for us is really domestically North American, both were talking about flattish and maybe slightly improved uh, uh, results for 2024. And I think that's being well received. Now, I think the interesting thing, uh, you know, that we're thinking about is just what are North American margins going to look like uh, in 2024? And right now, I think there's a lot of bearishness. EBITDA results have come down here uh, uh, for 2024. And so those companies that present the best case 
in the next few weeks, those are going to be the stocks that outperform. And so the last thing we'd say is like the next week or so, it's going to be really dominated by the oil services firms, particularly, you know, it's going to be more broader based. But over the next couple of weeks, we're going to also see some EMPs, midstream, refiners. It's going to broaden out. So we're going to get a really good feel for what 2024 is going to look like for the energy landscape. So with that, Maynard, we'll send it back to you. All right, Mike, thanks so much. Let's jump in with Dan. Dan, um, what's your what's your take? Uh, Davos, um, and I don't mean to lump together Davos with, with COP28, but these big global gatherings, um, uh, what's their role? What's their takeaway? What did you think about Davos? Are, are you glad you went? Just give us some, uh, right. those of us who didn't go, give us a feel for it. I've been able to go now for... Uh, couple of decades, really. And I find it uh, very constructive for two things. One, you get a lot of perspectives from different parts of the world and get to hear from people from different parts of the world. And two, uh, you get a sense of what's changing, what's new, what's on the agenda. And I guess in the third thing is you just get to meet a lot of people uh, from all over. So it's a very concentrated uh, process. It's different than Sarah Week, where you're, Sarah Week, you don't have to worry about snow or ice or cleats on your shoes. You don't have to worry about falling and, and rushing to meetings. Uh, Sarah Week all happens, as you know, in one place. So Davos is, uh, you, you know, you're, uh, you're out in the snow and it can get pretty cold there and pretty icy. But, uh, but you certainly pick up a lot of things and it helps you see, you know, what's changed from one year to the next. So Dan, is is Davos? Uh, is it on the ascent? Is it getting bigger and bigger and better each year? Or what would you just say about the the trend of of Davos as an important gathering? Well, I think it continues to be one of the places that people go there because it's a very efficient way to see a lot of different people, and so in you know and in an informal setting as opposed to um, you know trekking to an office or something like that or uh, so I think it's just people find the, um, the convening power very strong. And it has some very important speakers there uh, who give you perspectives on the world and, uh, you know, our changing world. Well, I think one of us, uh, one of the things we're always looking for is any comments that are coming out about energy or any of the myriad things that, that touch energy. Well, uh, this was... Well, it looks like you've already got some stuff on the well, table. Well, yeah, I was going to say, before energy, I want to say the two big changes from last year is that overall, the sense about the global economy is uh, more confident, the sense that the U.S. is not looking at a recession. Uh, so, you know, somewhat more, not just guarded optimism, but there was definitely optimism in the economy. However, for obvious reasons, much more pessimism about geopolitics and uh, the state of the world and these open-ended conflicts, uh, which have an impact on energy. But what's happening in uh, Russia's war on Ukraine, and then, of course, uh, in the Middle East. So, uh, and both of them feed back energy. You know, one of the things I, if I was following the news, uh, like a lot of us, and uh, there was a lot of mention of Trump like preparing for Trump. What if Trump wins? It's kind of, it reminded me of the Republican debates. You know, he's the most talked about person and he's not there, or at least he's very talked about and he's not there. Was well, that just was, a sideshow or was that really part of the know, He was definitely uh, much talked about. And I think, 
you know, for the Europeans in particular. And although you have a lot of Asians there, we have delegations from China there, and we'll come back to the Chinese uh, premier. Uh, but, you know, certainly a significant part are Europeans and sort of adjusting the fact that at least if you look at the polls, Trump is ahead. And what will that mean for the economy? What will it mean in terms of trade and tariffs? What will it mean in terms of NATO? What will it mean in terms of Ukraine? Uh, what will it mean in terms of energy policy and climate? So suddenly all of those things were no longer distant questions, but kind of, you know, I think for the Europeans it was kind of a shock uh, to realize, uh, you know, what the polls have been saying in the U.S. right now. You know, what, one person I, I noticed commenting uh, here and there uh, was uh, Jamie Dimon. And it is such an interesting conference because it has uh, political people, but also quite a lot of business people. It's a real mix of, um, of different types. Who else did you notice sort of making an impact or unique visitors or people getting above average amount of attention? Or what was the, what was the lineup that, that well, struck I you? Think, you know, this was the year. So I, well, let me put it this way. Often every year, there's a kind of one thing that's a really hot theme and hot topic. You will not be surprised that this year it was AI. If you walk mm -hmm. down the promenade, which is the snow draped kind of main route, it's not a big street or anything, all these international firms and brand names take over what are normally stores or doctor's offices or uh, 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 you know, the local bank or something and turn it into a display. And this year, everywhere up and down the street, it was all about AI uh, and um, and telling people, you know, that each group, you know, the big impact it would have. And Sam Altman of ChatGPT uh, was there, and he was clearly a big celebrity this year. So I would say that was the theme of uh, talking about AI. But, you know, you have, uh, obviously, you have a lot of CEOs there, uh, from the financial institutions, from companies. Um, uh, I met the CEO from a very large food company. I had dinner with him, who, who's one of his products is my wife's favorite cracker. So that was a, a special topic of conversation. But, uh, but it's, Did you procure a, uh, an extended supply? Well, he actually promised that I would get a, a special, you know, that I would get a shipment. So we'll, we'll see if he remembers. But um, no, you have... Uh, so there's a lot of interest in what the leaders of the financial community uh, are saying uh, and the corporate leaders. And then you have people like, you know, the head of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, who specifically talked about how, you, how Europe should prepare for Trump, which was an interesting comment. Uh, you had both Energy uh, Secretary of State Blinken and National Security Assistant uh, Jake Sullivan there. Um, but, uh, and a lot of political leaders, the Chinese premier was there and it was very interesting. His message reflected what we heard from President Xi Jinping when he was in San Francisco a couple of months ago, where his message was, we're open for business. China's open for business. But of course, a lot of business leaders are, you know, are, you know, a little more uh, careful because you quite don't know if that theme is going to remain or not, but that was, you know, a very small, strong message the Chinese wanted to give. Um, the um, Iranian foreign minister was there, 
and he was very hardline, of course. Uh, I have to say that uh, by accident, I almost collided with him in my hotel lobby, and I, his security guys really were uh, ready for mayhem, but uh, we, we, averted, we, we averted our collision, but uh, his message. And of course, the, I mean, Zelensky was there from Ukraine, very concerned about uh, whether he'll get, continue to get Western support in the war with Russia, because it, the feeling is that Putin is just really waiting for uh, Trump to be president. Uh, and um, uh, so Zelensky was quite impassioned in his remarks. Um, and, uh, but the other big thing, of course, is the, you know, there's Israel war in Gaza. Uh, they had a couple of people who were hostages who had been released by Hamas who were there. Uh, you know, people trying to see how does how does that end? And of course, and this gets to energy, Maynard, is the big thing is this proxy war. Let's call it a proxy war that's going on now. Obviously, there have been now about 140 attacks on U.S. soldiers, military personnel in Syria and Iraq. And the big thing is the disruption of the Red Sea. And uh, the Houthis, who were kind of obscure, people weren't thinking much about them. Now, you know, the oil tankers are being diverted around the uh, Red Sea. And I mean, it's very interesting. The, you know, the Suez Canal, the Red Sea, the what's called the Bab el-Mandeb, that strait, which is much less famous than the uh, Strait of Hormuz, you know, it was a very minor, it was a relatively minor avenue for oil. But the amount of oil going through it went from about 4 million barrels a day in 2021 to about 8 million barrels a day, over 8 million barrels a day, because because of the sanctions on Russian oil, uh, Russian uh, oil in Europe was going through, going south through the Red Sea to Asia, and Middle East oil, which would normally go to Asia, was coming up through the Red Sea uh, to to Europe. And now, of course, that's been, you know, the numbers are way down again. And one third of container shipping passes through uh, those waters. So you're looking at some real supply chain disruptions. And you can see, you know, starting to see more of a risk premium, at least right now, in, in oil prices because of, uh, because of that activity. And do you find it, uh, as you were ticking through, you know, some of the things happening in the Mideast, when you just pull back for a minute and say, war in Ukraine, uh, war in um, Israel, in Gaza, um, the Turks are have strikes going on, the Iranians are striking in Pakistan and Iraq, the U.S. is striking the Houthis. Like when you look at all that, you would think oil would be $85 and we would all be just on the edge of our seat around all this uh, terrible geopolitics and stress. Are, are you surprised that it's not a more... Well, I think we can see reasons for it. Of course, Maynard, we have to be prepared to be su surprised that, you know, things could change from one day to another. We've seen the price creep, creep up. I see two reasons for it. One, the oil market is still oversupplied right now. And, uh, and, and that gets to the second point, which is the, the shift, not only a shift of, in the physical supply, but there's been a geopolitical shift in, in oil as well. And we just did a paper called The North American Advantage on 
if you look at oil and gas and liquids, U.S. and Canada produce more oil than the Middle East. Middle East is still incredibly important, but it's a, we've seen a, a rebound in supply. And I think that's affected psychology as well, as well as, you know, the some concerns about the economy. So I think those would be two of the explanations why we've not seen in what otherwise is a very volatile, dangerous situation that could escalate quickly, you know, your question. I think, I think this demonstrates, among other things, how shale oil, what's happened in the United States, it's happened in Texas and North Dakota, uh, has really changed, uh, changed, you know, even the geopolitics of oil. And, you know, Maynard, a, a year ago, the general consensus was U.S. production in 2023 would be up 400,000 barrels a day. We said 700,000 people said we were extreme. It turned out to be a million. And I think that's I think that's a very important factor, and it underlines why the development we've seen in North America, U.S. and Canada, is important not only economically, but is really important in terms of security and uh, and geopolitics. In terms of the attendees, um, I think we're always curious about the, the the developing world and and if and if they're showing up in force and if their voices are being heard and if and if. Um, you know, just the, the feel of the whole thing is in balance. What, what would you say about how it felt from that perspective? Sometimes these gatherings can be a little too oriented towards Western developed world. Well, I think we did certainly, you know, it, it does, you know, probably have more of a European, you know, focus because it's easier for people to come from Zurich and, uh, you know, and, and Paris and uh, Berlin. But there's a significant uh, uh, developing world emerging market, a lot of people from India in particular. And we were part of discussions there where there, what comes through is a sense, what the words you use, Maynard, that those countries, that they want a bigger voice on energy and climate and, uh, and feel that it shouldn't just be determined in Paris and, and uh, Brussels, what happens. And that was there, and I heard discussion about that, about getting a voice. And that ties in to, uh, you know, what is, you know, the theme for Sarah Week, which is the multidimensional energy transition. Because I think a lot of the thinking about the energy transition was developed basically during COVID, when demand was going down and prices were going down. And uh, now, uh, and so you've got this very linear notion. Multidimensional means developing countries that worry about economic growth, that worry about poverty, that worry about health, will have different, different attitudes. You know, in 2020, people were saying oil demand was going to go down. Last year, it grew by over 2 million barrels a day. So, and that's where the growth will be. So I think that that's why we've taken this multidimensional energy transition as a theme of week to have a what we hope is a broader, more realistic, more inclusive view of what's happening in the energy world and and how the world, including the, the developing world where eighty percent of the world's people live, uh, how the, how they will uh, attain uh, the energy that they need for economic growth. Hey Dan, I'm I'm really interested in uh, some of the thoughts you talked about Davos. It seems like uh, you're saying that. There's more confidence that the economy in uh, 2024 is going to be better than expected, say, six months ago. And the reason I bring that up is if you look at uh, 
you know, OPEC, what they're assuming for demand for crude oil in 2024, it's near 2 million barrels a day. And, and let's say IEA is around a million barrels a day. And obviously Angola just pulled out of OPEC. And I guess my question is, if we're closer to the million barrels a day in demand in 2024, how do you think that affects the OPEC cohesion? Obviously UAE and Saudi are holding things together. If we really do grow down towards a million barrels a day, you're going to have a market where they're going to have to keep supply contained and maybe even have to cut again. What are your thoughts about the cohesion right now? What it could be sort of in the next six, nine months if that plays out? Well, if it is, if it is, if demand growth is weak and the supply continues to grow, that certainly puts more pressure on uh, OPEC plus uh, and, you know, their response. At some point, they may stop cutting. But uh, so far, they've been willing to cut to try and keep a floor under the price of oil. I think they're looking for, uh, and the feeling is, second half of the year, you'll start to see growth. Uh, you know, as you as you're noting, Mike, it's quite a gap between a one million and a two million, and that would be very significant uh, for uh, OPEC cohesion, and it would, you know, obviously affect prices as well. So you have the economic pressures on the oil price from one direction and the geopolitical pressures uh, on the other direction. And one question that's been coming up in our system is people are asking about the Russian production and how resilient it's been. Do you have any uh, gut reactions to why Russian production seems to continue to hang in there and why it may continue to do so? Well, I think that um, first, you know, while the service, international service companies and the companies and the international companies have pulled out, the people are still there. So they, you know, they still have the same skill sets. I mean, it is thought over time that it will, uh, you know, uh, it will tend to deteriorate, but not with that kind of 3 million barrel a day that I think the IEA predicted that when the war began. So the Russians have held it up and, and they've gotten their, and they've gotten their revenues. Uh, you know, that, uh, when, at least when prices were higher, they, you know, they were back to where they used to be in terms of revenues for a while. Now, obviously, we start to see there's more pressure on Russia. The other thing that's happening is uh, the G7 countries are realizing that they, they're going to be tougher. They're starting sanctioning people uh, for uh, violating the price cap. And I think we've seen some banks that were willing before to finance Russian oil to Asia. Asian banks are more concerned about being sanctioned now. So I think we're going to see some greater pressure on Russia's ability to uh, export Maybe as we move a little bit to energy and, and Davos and just some current thinking, I know uh, Fatih Barol was there. And, and one of the things we keep asking, uh, Dan, is um, asking about global estimates and, um, and, you know, trying to give the world the best reasonable scenarios for what the next 10, 15, 20 years look like. Is, is that a topic of, of discussion? Because uh, the IEA has very different numbers from you know, for instance, OPEC, those two kind of had a tiff about that. But are, are there any discussions like that that are interesting? Well, that was, there was, I heard discussions that the global south, if you can call it that, the open world, they need, and this goes back to the point you raised earlier, Mayor, they need a voice too. And that the IA, you know, you know, there's more, you know, you point, you point to the gap between OPEC and the IA and the IA today you know, is, is seen differently than it was uh, a couple of years ago. 
So, you know, in some quarters, it doesn't have the authority it did previously. I mean, the Japanese, for instance, have been quite critical of the IEA uh, mm-hmm. and uh, IEA scenarios. Uh, they did a paper that said the IEA at zero by 2050, the way they got there in Asia by was reducing economic growth by about 40%. So there is controversy around there that wasn't there before, I think. So, Dan, one kind of institutional question about Davos. Like, like when I think about CIRA, Dan Jurgen, you have been the driving force behind CIRA. You, you created it, you and Jamie and your team, and every year you make it better and better. Who is driving Davos? Like, what is the institutional support that makes Davos growing? Well, it is, you know, it is a personal commitment and charisma of Professor Klaus Schwab, who founded it 52 years ago and uh, continues to preside over it. And it's it's quite a big organization now. I mean, they do an immense amount of programming uh, and activities uh, uh, both in Davos, which is in Switzerland, but also around the world. But Dr. Schwab, uh, he's, he was there at the beginning and he's there right now. And, you know, he'll do the big interviews uh, on stage and so forth. So, but there's quite an organization behind there. And if you visit their headquarters uh, in Geneva, it's, it's a impressive, uh, uh, an impressive building. So let me ask you about two people I'm thinking about. One is John Kerry. <clears throat> and part of the reason I'm asking about him is he's obviously stepping down uh, from his role. And I'm curious about how that was perceived or how that was um, affected his comments or what you would say about him. And then the second person that we're all talking about, Dan, is Mile from Argentina and how he, he seemed to really kind of rock the boat uh, with some of his comments. But let me ask you about those two people in particular. Well, I think John Kerry uh, clearly wanted to stay on and was supportive of uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Sultan Jabber, uh, who was the president of COP, or is the president of COP28, and of course also CEO of ADNOC, the Abu Dhabi oil company. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I think Kerry was supportive of his leadership of COP28. Uh, and I think, I think he probably figures, you know, he's done the work he was going to do, and at least what he said publicly is that he wants to step down in order to campaign for Joe Biden. Uh, but I think he's I think from what he said, he feels he's done done the jobs. Uh, the new president of uh, Argentina, he's a guy who doesn't pull his punches. Uh, and uh, well, he didn't bring a chainsaw, I noticed, no, but otherwise, no, but, you know, Argentina. I remember when I was graduate student doing uh, economic history, and my professor had written a book on the Bank of London and, and uh, South America, which uh, you know, so he read about Argentina, and he said. The beginning of the 20th century, they said there were two countries that were going to take off: the United States and Argentina. U.S. did take off. Argentina has been, you know, has just such endemic problems of inflation, of an economy that is uh, so overcontrolled and overdominated. And so, you know, he's a real reformer. He doesn't have a majority in the Congress in his Congress, but um, he's certainly not afraid to say that markets are a good thing and should be. You know, should be supported. So he has a he's taken on quite a task, and he certainly did stir things up there in terms of uh, his 
his what he was saying he wants to do and the importance of markets. Well, in his, his speech, we um, we of course watched it and forwarded it around to some friends. But it um, th- this this element of like let's stop creeping towards socialism and let's stop let's start let's start moving back towards freedom. Do you, does that resonate in the halls of Davos? Like, well, I think it, it resonates with the private sector. Uh, but you know, Europe is a, I mean, a much, much more regulated, micro-regulated economy than ours. I mean, the CEO of one of the big European chemical companies said that there are 14,000 pages of regulation that govern his company, the company, the EU, going to 25,000, and he has to employ 30 people just to read regulations, and uh, and you get regulations by people who don't really. I mean, you hear it again and again, you don't really have much contact with markets uh, uh, and don't understand how markets work. And so that is a, a tradition of the EU. That's part of the reason of Britain's, you know, the revolt against the EU in, in Britain and it's leaving the EU. So, um, you know, so I think probably private sector people are glad to hear that message, uh, but it's not one that would resonate necessarily with government officials in Europe. And, you know, it was clear that he was, I wouldn't say, he was not a flamethrower, but he was pretty fiery in his message. So maybe just to talk about the, the energy transition and, and climate, um, you, as you said, you've been to, to Davos many, 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 many times, and this energy conversation and the climate conversation has been changing. What, what would you say is the, um, the overall attitude slash takeaway uh, around a, a climate and energy, do people think we need to rethink? Well, or, well or I think the, that, um, you know, I found myself a lot talking about part of the new map, you know, my latest book, because, you know, I said, you really got to, you can't just throw around this term energy transition, you got to think what it, what it is. And I think one of the things I tell people in the most, part of the new map they have to really read is the history of energy transitions. And because they're, they don't, it didn't only take a century, and to try and do them in 25 years in a $105 trillion economy with countries at very different stages of development is a very challenging uh, thing to do. So I think, um, so I found myself a lot, and, you know, and people coming up to me who, who read the new map and saying how important it was for them to have that framework, because otherwise it's just kind of language that's out there and you don't really have a context for it. Do people, Dan, one, one of the things that, that will come up a lot uh, in some of our discussions is you know, German power prices are so high. Uh, some companies are choosing to move industrial production from Germany to other places. Same with the UK. Like power, there are blackouts in various parts of the Western world. Power an increasing issue? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that, of course, will be one of the themes that Sarah uh, Week, including for North America, where, uh, you know, for years, CEOs of power companies were dealing with flat or declining demand. Now they're saying, how do you build, you know, how do you meet growing demand? And so we'll be talking a lot about things like, Sarah, like permitting. Another thing we've heard a lot about is actually there's a shortage of workers to do things like, you know, uh, be linemen and things like that. And, uh, in general, uh, the, the employee gap and then the uh, supply chain problems. So, 
uh, that's true in Europe, but it's certainly true in the U.S. And, um, you know, as we've been preparing for Sear Week, that's the question if you're going to have an increasingly electrified society, reliable electricity, and, uh, and how do you achieve that? So I heard that there at Davos, and it's a theme that will be picking up at Sarah Week. Another so, by the way, if I can mention that we heard at, uh, I heard at Davos, uh, and we'll do, you know, we now at Sarah Week have a big mineral mining track because, you know, the question is how do you, um, an electric car uses two and a half times more copper than a traditional car. So you're going to need a lot more minerals, and that gets you into all the geopolitical issues uh, with China and the question of processing. And you know, a number that I heard in Davos, which you know will be part of the discussion at Zero Week. You know, the U.S. has two copper smelters. China has, guess what, 55 copper smelters. What's the likelihood of getting a copper smelter built, financed, and permitted in the United States? Very low. So this issue of Minerals is much more complicated than just you know just where are the mines. Is the processing such an you know incredibly important part of it? Dan, you mentioned the multi-dimensional energy transition, technology, markets, climate, technology, and geopolitics. Tease us a little bit more about Sierra this year. You guys always manage to add some new things or um, some new twists. What's uh, what's got you excited about it? How do you see it? Well, I think this concept is very important because I think there's a people need a framework for thinking about energy and energy transition. And this is a conference. Yes, it'll be about energy transition, but it's also it's going to be about energy. You know, eighty-three uh, percent of world energy is hydrocarbons, and a lot of people are employed in making sure that natural gas market demand is met. Uh, they're out, you know, drilling uh, in in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so there's a whole host. So I think that's supply. And then at the same time, dealing with the agenda of decarbonization, low carbon uh, processes. And then, as you know, we have the Agora, which is this incredible technology hub platform. You know, just uh, it's extraordinary to see all of that bubbling of innovation uh, going on. But we'll be dealing with the Big issues, obviously LNG, a lot of controversy now, uh, tension around LNG. Uh, that's going to kind of be on the agenda, uh, and um, you know, and uh, you know, assuring the supplies and dealing. You know, the geopolitical picture is really complicating because you know this globalized world that we knew for thirty years, that's over now. We're in a different kind of world with different kinds of tensions. And it's a lot more complicated for companies to operate in this world than in a world in which all you thought about was supply chains in terms of efficiency. You didn't have to think about supply chains in terms of geopolitics or protectionism or nationalism or global or global competition. So I think we, we want to certainly give a framework for all of that at Sarah Week to see where the energy industry is today, where it's going, and then the context, the environment in which it operates. Those were all that's why that. You know, you, you gave this whole subtitle for Sirwi, and all of those factors are at work. We would have liked to have only had two subtitles, but we wouldn't have, we needed all four of them to capture the themes of uh, Sirwi, and it's going to be a very uh, dynamic. And I always find Sirwi 
you know, it's learn a lot. You learn a lot about how things are changing and where the trends are and where directions are. And I think there's a real need for that. Uh, 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 this March, it's zero week, uh, uh, zero week 2024. Hey, Dan, at Veritim, we're really, really focused on electricity growth. I mean, I think that's going to be a great theme and I and look forward to hearing it at your conference. I, I want to step back and, you know, think about in July of 2022, you put out that fantastic report, The Future of Copper, just really, really constructive. And since then, I've seen Panama shut down a copper mine. You've seen lithium prices fall, critical mineral prices fall. Copper kind of goes sideways. EVs are not really kind of penetrating as quickly in the U.S. Maybe a thought process, that report on copper was very, very constructive. If you sit there and say two years later, how are you thinking about copper? Are you still as constructive? Do you have to take a, a step back? How do you think uh, we, you know, we start thinking about hearing about that from you guys over the next couple months? Well, I think that, that, that's a very uh, good question. And you pointed out about that, ma- that mine being canceled in Panama. You know, so the notion that you're oh, just going to go out and the supply is going to be there, I think that's a real kind of warning sign of the tension. And I think that means that the copper market is tighter than people thought it would be. Um, I think it's, you know, we're still very much at the beginning phases of the demand for what we call the energy transition minerals. And so lithium appears to be the most abundant. And, you know, there's a lot of effort going into that, uh, including innovative things in the United States. So people are less concerned about lithium. But I think the other minerals, you start to look at them, as demand increases, you, you will have pressure. And then there's a question of investment and the question of, uh, of people, and then the question of permitting. I mean, there, permitting is an issue, not just in the United States, but really around the world. So I still think, you know, that the whole question of minerals is a really important one for the energy future, but it's also affected near term by the economic cycles. Well, Dan, as we wrap up, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm coming up with an idea. I don't know how good it is, but maybe we can take all those people who are slowing down permitting and, you know, take them and make them line operators. Like we'll solve the labor problem right. with all those bureaucrats. Well, what I heard from uh, an executive at one of the large uh, wind, wind generating companies in the United States, he said what they were going to do, their plan now is to hire people who are, are just eighth graders. So by the time they retire, in 50 years, they'll finally have gotten the things permitted. So, uh, you know, we always hear permitting reform, but it's sure hard to get it done. And there's so many ways to, in the U.S. system, to stop things from happening. Well, Dan, thank you so much for spending some time with us, giving us some, some Davos impressions. We're very fired up for Sierra. We can't wait. All our friends are coming over in Houston. What is it? Like, it's usually 8,000, 10,000 people. It's 8,600 if you include both the Agora and the executive conference. So, uh, but, you know, there's going to be a lot there. And I think people, whatever their interests, they'll be able to find their interests met. So uh, we're excited to to be back in Houston for this and uh, look forward to seeing you there. And and, uh, uh, thank you for your chance to chat about things now. Well, we appreciate you, all the work you do and your friendship. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, everybody.